Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Eat, Eat It. It. <laughs> uh, did I beat you that time to the it? I think so, because I was waiting for you. Oh, you to, were trying to, to preempt the me. Words. I couldn't hear them. That's smart. Maria and I have figured out that the lag is because of our, it, because of my internet. My internet's really bad. And see, even right now, I think I might be able to hear myself <laughs> talking, but Maria can't. But I'm recording on my end, yes. so I think it should be fine. And it's just funny because I'll say something and I look at Sam's face and I'm like, oh, he didn't, he didn't think that was funny. But then two seconds later, he's like, haha. And I'm like, oh, okay. It's just taking like a, a second to get us. Um, what were we talking about, babe? We were talking about, oh yeah, the, how bad the Wi-Fi has been, which case in point, we, I just fully disconnected for 20, 20 seconds, not 20 minutes, but um, and your face was like frozen in this um, very creepy, like smile with your eyes closed. Um, it always says that about my face when it freezes. That's horrible. Is that it's creepy? Yeah. I don't know. The the previous time it froze, you returned to the side and I got to see like your intense jawline and said that was a cute look. Um, the clown smile didn't Can do it. Can you for me not though. sexualize me on our own podcast? <laughs> Thanks. Hey, if I'm not going to do it, who is big? She's, she's hitting it? on me, Your Honor. Your Honor, <laughs> she's hitting on me. Is um, it working? I love how you're like, no one else would hit on me. Though you're oh. though you're factually correct. <laughs> um I, I sit oh. here with my greasy hair on my pajamas. Um you're hot. Don't worry. okay. Well, what is new? What are you eating this week, Marge? This week, I'm really excited. So I have I went to Angus Tea Bakery, which okay. like specializes in croissants. Oh, okay. And so they have like a whole range of croissants. They have like a lemon curd one, an Earl Grey one, your classic. They have savory ones that have like like a multitude of savory chocolate. ones. Chocolate, chocolate. They do have a uh, the the double baked almond has chocolate in it, and then there's also a chocolate raspberry one. But no, just like no chocolate croissant. To be fair, you know that that's not what I would look for, so I actually can't remember. Oh my god! Okay. <laughs> but they also do. Sorry, you can hear my mom's in the background. She's cleaning up. Um, but they also do cinnamon buns with like a range of different toppings so you can get cinnamon buns with like red bean on them which is kind of cool oh cool okay yeah but anyways all that to say today i'm eating a pistachio croissant oh it looks and look cute. how many like layers of pastry there are like that that's actually amazing nuts, yeah Holy. so i'm really excited okay cool well this week i'm eating a creme brulee donut from holy cow whoa isn't that oh, good that. look at the brew oh. like yeah i guess the listeners can't see it but it looks brulee You're like it's no like, no look at it everyone it looks like a plain donut but with like sh- a sugar glaze and then like it's yeah. been brulee it looks really yum so um oh, cool. and it's from holy cow it's next to Vendome. so oh like, close to <laughs> my normal haunts. yeah i'm sticking yes. yeah so um i'm excited to try Oh, and also, um, to be fair, I didn't know what your topic was going to be this week until like about like 30 minutes ago. And so yeah. my snack is completely unrelated. And once I found out, I was like, maybe I can form a connection. I cannot. I, there's no connection that can be made. So it's just. And just that's snacking. your fault. Not, <laughs> it's not my fault. My and fault. also, yeah. <laughs> for the people who get confused about how the snacks tie into the history, they don't have to. We're just eating. So deal with it. It's, it's a plus. <laughs> that the, the idea was it's two friends catching up, mm-hmm. eating food, and teaching each other history that we find interesting. Yes. And yes. It's, it's bites of history and uh, bites of snacks. And it's that yes. sad. 
So if it ever has a relation, it's simply bonus. It is not yeah. expectation. <laughs> no. And clearly it's not because mine never has a relation. So. Well, yeah. Fair it's, enough. It's never had <laughs> relations with that um, topic. That's a big point of reference <laughs> if you're wondering. Oh. <laughs> I've never had sexual relations like, with that woman. I was like, I've before, but yeah. I was like, <laughs> Any time to bring up <laughs> Bill Clinton, we'll do it. Oh yeah, you know me. Um, well, speaking of Bill Clinton, let's get into the, the topic yes. of this episode, the history of cosmetic surgery. Yes, Just I have to ask before before we start, Have do you want to get cosmetic surgery? Like, have you ever considered it? Not that you need it. I'm not saying like, have you considered it? Like, <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I mean, like right now I'm going to say no. Mm -hmm. Um, I could definitely maybe go for some, some Botox maybe just to try it. I I don't think I'd ever want to, you know, do it long-term because it is literally injecting botulinum toxin into your face. And I don't think that's the problem. If you understand science, yeah. um, me with my ignorance doesn't phase me. It doesn't bother you. You're like, doesn't bother me. Well, I honestly, some of the shit I learned from the history of cosmetic surgery, you might, you might want to hold the phone on these new techniques. Um, I have considered it though. Okay, you have. Okay. Yeah, nothing major. I don't think because I think sometimes this stuff that's major, right? You, you, you sometimes can look worse afterwards. Like quite right. frequently, I don't think that it's always great. Right. So the, I've only considered like Botox. I think I would potentially get, and then I also considered shaving my gums okay. so that I could have like a less gummy smile and like more like teeth showing. Right. Uh, but with the catch with that is like, then obviously your teeth have like less holding them in and keeping, I'd rather have teeth when I'm 90 than a less gummy smile when I'm 20. So, yeah, you know, it is trade-offs, trade-offs. right? Yeah. <laughs> you want teeth and you don't want gingivitis or like sensitivity either, which I feel like no. you'd get if you shaved maybe. So Yeah. So next time I take my razor. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's gross. a gross sensation. Thanks for conjuring that. Um, <laughs> okay, well, let's get into it. Yes, let's do it. I like, let's get into it. It freezes for like five <laughs> seconds. Okay, and I think I've said this already this episode, but this is going to be a fucking clusterfuck. Okay, it's going to be... And we're ready for it. it it's not as... Sam, not that I... To be fair, Sam did a lot of other research for like a different project this week. So he was double... Thank double you. booked and I couldn't and I, I can't time manage it. so so yeah I mean, it, it's maybe hopefully it'll be a shorter episode the listeners might not be used to that because I just have less to say on it but um <laughs> we can get into it okay so yeah, let's do it I will preface this by saying like mostly I try and draw from a bunch of sources for my podcast episodes this one I'm drawing on literally one book um basically it's it's the only Hmm. history I could find of cosmetic surgery that's kind of like comprehensive it's it's called um Venus Envy Mm -hmm. a history of cosmetic surgery by um Elizabeth Haken and it's a play I didn't get it until like Mm -hmm. after I'd read like a quarter of the book then I realized it's a play on penis envy but like I didn't get that I didn't know that yeah I just thought of the goddess Venus and I was like oh yeah well yeah I think that's the I think it's like Venus like Aphrodite but also like goddess of beauty but also like penis Mm -hmm. envy like the Freudian thing um so anyways I didn't get that but anyways Venus envy so I will say most of this research comes from her credit to her um and if there's factual errors it's probably still my fault somehow but okay so a lot of plastic surgeons like Haken alleges a lot of surgeons when they tell their own history like 
the history of cosmetic surgery, cosmetic plastic surgery, they often trace their history back to this Indian physician, Sushruta in 600 BC, um, BCE, who described a technique for making a nose out of someone's cheek. And they'll also often like trace their history back to like the 16th century Italian surgeon, Gasparo Tagliacozzi of Bologna, Italy, um, who kind of came up with this reconstruction technique for a nose using tissue from the upper arm. But this is not that podcast. We're not going that far back. We're just doing the modern history because we're doing every single cosmetic surgery through the history yeah, of time. Yeah, it's like pips. I don't have time. We're doing like a modern history, a short history. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, hopefully that's, hopefully that's interesting. So yeah. do you know anything about the history of cosmetic surgery? Like, would you say, like, is there a certain time period that sticks out for you for like when you would think it would kind of, it would have come to be or? Not entirely. All of my knowledge of cosmetic surgery lies in the show Botched, mm. the reality show. Right. That is right. exclusively what I know about. On <laughs> the TV surgery. show Botched. Yes. From I the TV that. show Botched. Thank you. No. Well, okay. I think like the way I'll try and structure this, I didn't have a structure coming into this, but the way I think we can try and structure it is we'll do like pre-World War One. Oh. Between mm-hmm. World War One and World War Two, and then post-World War Two. If that makes sense. Get your face lifted during the depression, baby. <laughs> so we'll act. Okay. We're literally going to talk about the depression, but okay. So, oh, so perfect. Uh, like we'll split it into those time periods just to make it make sense mm-hmm. chronologically. So, um, yes, if we're thinking pre-World War one, which, you know, 1914, 1918, um, cosmetic surgery and, and medicine broadly had not been like for context had not really been um, professionalized in the way we think of medicine today. Right. So like today, yes. when you go to a doctor, you may or may not know this, but you probably have a sense that they've been certified by a body of other physicians who have knowledge in the specialty. You know, they have competence, but they haven't just like said that they are a doctor and started practicing on people. They've actually, yeah, they're not like, they're not rando quacks, right? Like they, they like have training you, like, if you're going to go get Mm -hmm. like, say like a heart transplant, you know, the person who's done it had to train (laughs) to learn how to do a heart surgery and, and whatever. So yes, really that process takes place like that, that, formation of like um, professional societies that self-regulate that are allied with um, often with state healthcare that comes to be especially in like the 19th century um, and a lot mm-hmm. of the professionalization ha- happens in the early 20th century so at this right. point like pre-world war one there obviously are physicians they do use you know the scientific method um, but there's not a ton of um, regulation and like even early on mm-hmm. the, the mm-hmm. American medical association, which had like a, like say, I think 50% of doctors in that time were registered with them, but like another 50 weren't, they launched this campaign mm-hmm. against like quack doctors <laughs> oh, against no. like pseudoscience, whatever. So <laughs> if we're thinking kind of, that's like the context is like, you have um, people who are maybe more like legitimate professionals who have trained at medical schools and mm-hmm. who are, you know, um, who might have more knowledge, you then might have other people who are, you know, have more questionable practices, questionable ethics, whatever. And so it's in this context that we can think about like early cosmetic surgery. So pre-World War One, there's still like interest in, um, in cosmetic surgery. A lot of histories of cosmetic surgery say it really starts with the first world war and we'll get into why, but there is some mm-hmm. interest pre-World War One. Can I make a guess? Oh yeah, go. Is it because soldiers like were needing like amputations and had been like injured and they needed things fixed? Exactly. So like a lot of the the pioneering techniques of plastic surgery and cosmetic surgery come Mm -hmm. from 
working on soldiers who had brutal facial injuries, particularly mm-hmm. facial injuries, but injuries all over their body. And so that's how the history is often told. But um, Haken, Elizabeth Haken also notes that there is also cosmetic surgery before World War I. And of a lot yes. of it has to do actually with syphilis. Oh. So with apparently with um, congenital syphilis, it often produced um, a particular shape of nose that they called like a saddle nose. Like you'd often have a depression in the middle of your nose. So like you'd have like oh. kind of like your, the bridge of your nose would be straight, would kind of go in towards your face and then come back out. And so- um, Stupid question. Yeah. Syphilis is an STD. Yes, exactly. Sorry. Yeah, I okay. should say syphilis was a like the, I think the most common um, sexually transmitted infection at the time, like literally everyone mm-hmm. had it. And depending on kind of, there were a bunch of different symptoms of it. It could cause like full neurological disorders. Um, mm-hmm. You could have very mild syphilis and only have like genital symptoms. Um, if you right. like, if a parent, like if a mother gave birth to a child and they had syphilis that could p- produce other kinds of um, mm. health problems. So anyways, there was a lot of syphilis going around and yes. from my, I think it's, I think it's congenital syphilis. So syphilis contracted from like in the womb, basically right, that people right. who were born with that often had this kind of depressed nose. And so okay. a lot of, um, European doctors and American doctors started experimenting with, um, rhinoplasty. So like nose, the oh. early nose job to try yes. and, um, to basically fill in that kind of saddle that I talked about, that gap. Yeah. Um, oh, cool. Not only though, was it was there this focus on the syphilitic nose, there was also a focus on um, like racialized features. So a lot of particularly mm. Jews who were racialized as having, like there was stereotypes types of Jews having large noses. And so any person who had a large nose like that was often called in the literature that's anti-Semitic, like a Jewish nose. And then would like um, surgeons would try and like change them to be like more oh. like Euro, like, like Protestant, like, I, which doesn't even yes. really make sense. Right. Cause they're anyway, so shifting categories, but um, so yeah, those are kind of like the, the early efforts were um, attempts to like change Jewish people's noses to be not Jewish, mm. which is pretty pernicious. And then to, to, for people who had this depressed nose that um, were syphilitic to right. change those. So the earliest techniques, um, like in the early 1900s oh, and late 1800s. Is this going to be really gross? Is I think you really might gross? find it gross. So oh, no. they used paraffin as basically like the paraffin fill- wax. Yeah. Like paraffin wax, like paraffin. Oh. They would insert that into the nose because the challenge with these syphilitic noses was that um, you had to add volume, not remove it. Right. And so there had, there were other, um, techniques at the time, like rhinoplasties at the time, but they were more at like removing tissue, right. Mm -hmm, Which is easier mm -hmm. to do as a surgeon than to add tissue or add volume. And so Mm -hmm. paraffin was used to fill in often that, that saddle in the nose because (laughs) it's, it seemed to be inert. So it didn't move around the face, um, like easy to Mm -hmm. acquire and was thought not to be, um, like toxic in any way. Mm-hmm. but uh, they then realized that in fact, paraffin tended to move, especially when patients were out in the sun, it would cause it, I guess, I don't know if it was the heat or what, but it would cause the, the paraffin to move around the face. And sadly, it also caused no. what doctors called paraffinomas or wax cancers. So it would literally like the insertion of it into your, um, um, into your body could actually create cancers. And so removing it was very difficult. It left a lot of scarring, but in like the pre-war period, 
it was one of the kind of experimental methods uh, of cosmetic surgery. So, and interestingly, doctors didn't just try and use paraffin alone. Sometimes they use paraffin and Vaseline, Vaseline alone, um, no. Vaseline and olive oil. No. So all sorts of combinations um, that they thought could maybe be um, more or less useful. I also note that um, paraffin was also used to fill facial wrinkles or in one case to create a testicle for someone that only had one testicle. Oh, so, well, they're doing God's work. So. They really are. Like, so, yeah, doing a, <laughs> well, I can't believe some of these people were called quacks. I don't get it. Um, so that's like, yeah, who knew? I know it's strange. Um, so that's kind of the, the pre-war period. For the most part, this cosmetic surgery is, is relatively common, both in the, the US and in Europe. Like it's, it's not like people are talking about getting nose jobs. A lot of people are getting them. Like it was a, it was a relatively um, marginal practice. Yes, and the nose yeah. job was, was pretty uncommon. Um, it was not Beverly Hills currently. <laughs> it was not Beverly Hills, no. Um, and so it's not until really World War I that you start to get the development of a like plastic surgery and, and cosmetic surgery yes, really yeah. starts to take shape. And yeah. like the interesting thing about it was obviously, and like, I guess the context was that, you know, it's this trench warfare. Mm-hmm. A lot of the soldiers are wearing um, these steel helmets to protect them yes. from projectiles which would often save their lives. But when projectiles would hit them, sometimes the helmets would shatter and then lodge themselves in their face or the projectile itself would shatter and shear off parts of the face, right? Or like, so, or create a lot of damage. And so that's really where um, European and American surgeons really learned um, and pioneered and, and created all these like basic kind of plastic surgery, reconstructive surgery techniques with a particular mm-hmm. focus on the aesthetic of the surgery, not just on like something functional, right? Because for mm-hmm. the most part, surgery um, up until this point is focused on like, you know, internal organs or like parts of the body that maybe aren't as um, visually important, but the face mm-hmm. is like, mm-hmm. for a lot of people is a key way of presenting yourself to the world. And so yeah. there was um, this attempt to deal with like the horrors of what had happened to these men's faces and these, these horrible, yeah. um, military accidents. So, you know, people said that the, in the four years of the war, like that the techniques in surgery advanced by like 50 years because yeah, they just were course. doing so much work. They were pioneering all these techniques. And so, yeah. um, that's where like a lot of people who end up going to create the first um, association of plastic surgeons in the U.S. come from. They come from doing this um, reconstructive surgery. The other thing that I found interesting that this isn't even related to surgery was that for people whose faces could not be um, restored adequately with surgery, they often, like some artists were sometimes commissioned to create painted masks that people would wear. Um, Like Phantom of the Opera. See, is that what that is? I don't know what happened okay. to him. I went to the play once, but okay. uh, he just wears a half mask for most of the time. And then underneath the mask, he's like disfigured. Okay. See, yeah. You and I are both kind of noobs when it comes to Phantom of the Opera. I have no <laughs> idea, but, um, no clue. but, but yeah, so that's funny. Um, so a key part of this too, like a key part of the logic of the, the reconstructive surgeries that they were doing obviously was like a, they were deemed medically necessary because like they, there was this idea that when the, that the mm. war ended and these soldiers had to c- come back to society, they wouldn't be able to get jobs. They wouldn't be able to provide for themselves or their, their wife or their children. 
um, mm-hmm. they wouldn't be able to reintegrate. And so yes, at the because time, yeah. <laughs> although they served for their country, they were now a little bit ugly. Well, yeah, standard. honestly, it's it's sad, so, but like that was kind of the the logic, right? Like these people wouldn't be able to get jobs, and at the time, obviously, very um, patriarchal economic arrangements where like men were the providers for families and so it was seen as medically necessary to do these things and not as like quack science because yes because these they felt that it was important for um for them and and you saw a similar ish justification with syphilis was that um you know people with the the saddle nose there was a lot of stigmatization of people with syphilis so some doctors Mm -hmm. justified it like oh we're helping people you know not be noticeable Mm -hmm. i guess so that's like the the world war um at the same time you also have like by the end of the war you have like surgeons also speaking out against so-called beauty doctors who are like more peripheral who are doing cosmetic surgeries that they don't see as medically necessary right so like a nose job for example um in say like 1920 would not have really been seen as medically necessary in the way that a reconstructive facial surgery for a soldier would have been and so there was a lot of stigma um within medical communities like the you know the legitimate surgeons who served in the war versus the um quack Mm -hmm. doctors who you know pretended that they could help you and would do dubious things to to make your nose more beautiful or whatever Mm -hmm. else um and i'll just note too that in 1920 by then paraffin has been uh, abandoned just if you're curious but uh big bummer for the parents i know i know but (laughs) so when did the term like plastic surgery come into play like and like is there a reason that's called plastic surgery oh no that's a good question so from my understanding is it comes to be like in 1921 (laughs) okay uh, a group of a group of specialists who had um assisted in the war and reconstructive efforts created a specialty called plastic surgery and I might be wrong on this so you can fact check this but my understanding is that the the word plastic was chosen meaning like the ability to to mold or to shape people's people's appearance or or faces and like I said plastic surgery includes like the reconstructive kind of war surgery and also this kind of more marginal cosmetic surgery if that makes sense um so yeah I should have said that's 1921 it it doesn't have to do with what they're putting into your body as in like it's not plastic but it's more so like their ability to like shape and mold you yes that's my understanding um and one other thing I'll just throw in there that Aiken points out that I think is a useful thing for getting a sense of the zeitgeist at the time is so 1921 is when these group of specialists get together to create the specialty called plastic surgery 1921 is also the first um Miss America pageant and so there's like a, she makes the claim or the argument oh, that like, that's very convenient that, yeah, that there's like this particular <laughs> new kind of American interest in physical beauty that happens, particularly in the post-war mm-hmm. period compared to, to before. Um, and I don't really have right. any, any way of evaluating that, but she makes that claim. And I think it's an interesting kind of comparison. It's the interwar period that you get a lot of, um, you get a lot of like, I guess the the professionalization of the the profession where there hadn't been before, and that happens concurrent mm-hmm. with like the broader professionalization of um, medicine in the United States more broadly. So, for example, um, I, I think I said this earlier, but in um, like 1900, the American Medical Association that we think of today as being this key like actor in, in regulating uh, physicians in the U.S. 
Um, they started rerouting their membership through county and state medical societies to, to organize their physicians better. Um, and in 1920, mm. about 60% of the nation's physicians were members. So not it's not similar, I guess, to today where you would have a much higher proportion, but you, there's an increased kind of centralization yes. in how physicians are trained, how they're certified. In right, 1930, right. Um, so still in this interwar period, the American Board for Medical Specialties is set up. So they help set the general standards um, and jurisdictional disputes around like what techniques or problems are dealt by like an internist versus like a dermatologist or whatever, right? Oh, so, okay. so things right. like that. They set up the standards to make sure, like we said, that you're being trained to do these things <laughs> that, you know, we might expect you to do. Yes. And it's in 1937, so just seven years later, that the American Board of Plastic Surgery is set up in this interwar period. And you start to see a standardized program uh, of education for plastic surgeons which, who would do, mm-hmm. you know, reconstructive surgery. Uh, Mm -hmm. And some of them would also do some of that cosmetic surgery that would be kind of more seen as less uh, virtuous, less worthwhile. Yes. Um, So at the time in 1937, you have 120 uh, physicians who are certified in the U.S. as uh, plastic surgeons. Um, And so, you know, Haken makes the argument basically that like when the war ends, it was seen as this war to end all wars. So mm-hmm. if you're someone who's, you know, focusing on these reconstructive surgeries or plastic surgery, if you know you're not really going to have massive reconstruction work to do, you might start to focus on something else. Otherwise, you don't really have a field of competency as a right. physician, right? Because right? there was a sense at the time, like once World War One was over, it's like, okay, we fought the big war and we're never going to do this again. So it's like, yeah. you're never going to deal with people with these massive facial injuries. So but now you have all these people who have pioneered these techniques who are invested. What are they going to do? Yeah, there's yes. there's there's a, a bit of a shift towards this cosmetic surgery. Also, in the interwar period, you get this um, the emergence of this this psychological concept of the inferiority complex, which I'm sure you know we've heard of oh. in, in in passing. And it was it was um, yes. created by this Austrian psychiatrist Alfred Adler. And he didn't really come up with the inferiority complex, but he came up with this idea of inferiority and said that, um, you know, inferiority in children is this normal stage in development, right? Because you're, you're, you're a child and you are, in his mind, inferior to adults. But as part of <laughs> development, um, you, you kind of grow into your own and then you no longer feel inferior to others, right? Okay. But if right. something goes wrong in development, you might... Mm-hmm. <laughs> like keep having that feeling of inferiority and that can have negative psychological influences. Just being insecure is what he's talking about. No, literally. And so it's interesting that this idea of the inferiority complex becomes really important in the interwar period for justifying these surgeries. Because like I said, there's Mm. kind of this tension in, in the medical community. Are they justified or not? But once you could say like this surgery is used to eliminate someone's inferiority complex, like their psychological Mm, problems, it actually becomes a necessary medical intervention, right? Right. Um, And so so that kind of is, if you think of the trajectory, you're thinking of like in World War I, it's medically necessary for these men to be economically independent. That Mm -hmm. kind of then gets added on in the interwar period. There's the inferiority complex, which is one justification. And there's also Mm -hmm. a sense that this cosmetic surgery could advantage people in the modeling or sales industry. Like if you were, yeah. if you were selling stuff to people, it mattered how you looked and that cosmetic surgery right. was actually important for you to, um, to survive economically and, and succeed. 
Right. And actually in the Great Depression, as you mentioned, that kind of makes this, Haken argues that this, the Great Depression makes that even more pointed because there's this sense amongst a lot of physicians that, you know, we're in this Darwinian race of life and that by improving people's looks, you could actually that would change their outcome in between like success and failure in this, this period of real economic hardship. So there was almost like an, oh. there was like a real economic and social desire to change how people looked because it could help them in this Darwinian race of life, if that makes sense, which is kind of creepy. Oh, how horrible. I know. How isn't horrible. that, isn't that awful? And like, yeah, I mean, Darwinian and eugenics thinking was, was big at this time amongst physicians, but um, yeah. So, so, I mean, that's kind of a, that's another important thing to think about at this time. And then um, the other, like one just interesting little tidbit that Haken includes in her book is that in 1927, there was an attempt to start up a pilot in San Quentin in California to test the effects of prisoners. Yeah. Prisoners um, to test the effects of surgery, plastic surgery on them to see if that oh. would reduce their quote unquote psychological problems and make them not criminals anymore. So if they were hotter, they wouldn't be as evil. Yeah. And to be honest, like this, right. there's like a long lineage of thinking in the 1800s and the early 1900s of like, it's called um, phrenology and physiognomy. They're like these ways of like, you know, measuring heads or measuring people's features Mm -hmm. to prove that certain things are criminal like you can tell by looking at someone if they're criminal and most of it came from like um most of it was like racist science to try and prove that like indigenous and black people were criminal like is where that history comes from but I just found that like a very interesting link that then plastic surgery is like oh maybe we can change how people look and that'll change how they are Whereas um, if you've ever watched The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, you know that no amount of plastic surgery can make you evil or less evil. No. no <laughs> you, are who you are you are. who you are. Um, so yeah, so I, I think that's, this is kind of like an interesting period. You get the psychological justification yeah. of cosmetic surgery, it becomes more normal. And then um, in turn, any kind of like facial quote unquote defect then became could become medicalized as a deformity, right? Yes. Because if you think of before, like right. if you had like a double chin or crow's feet or whatever else, like that's just was seen as part of who you were and it might be yes. something you don't like, but it's not a medical, it's not a disease, right? Or it's not a yeah. defect or a deformity, but more and more some plastic surgeons in the US started to, to, to medicalize and describe these things as defects that would cause you to have a bad psychological state of mind because you have an inferiority complex and the defect or deformity had to be addressed. So that's also kind of just an interesting um, little note in this. Um, So that's kind of the the interwar period. And then I guess like the the post-World War II period, you have the same kind of situation in World War II. Yes. Like the importance of these reconstructive surgeries, again, like... um, massive advancements in plastic surgery um and and as i said like this is following the the creation of the american board of plastic surgery which is in 1937 so now you have like an official um specialty that's trained in these things that have developed these new techniques um Mm -hmm. and the war helped kind of fan interest in plastic surgery more broadly because there were a lot of these stories about you know the great work these surgeons did um, but following World War II, a big shift was that there was the emergence of a middle class um, 
particularly of, of women who were more economically independent because of the war, right? Taking on these jobs. Right. That when men went off to war, women took on these jobs. It, it was big for like women's labor, right? World War II. Yes. And so, yeah. and plus the United States particularly did not have all the infrastructural damage that Europe had following the war. So they remained relatively unscathed and as kind of economic victors of the war, right? Like it was good for the, the US economy yes. and, and they didn't have any... Um, kind of massive issues with their own in- infrastructure in the same way. Yeah, they didn't have to rebuild everything. Exactly. So so there was yeah. also like, um, th- there was a this generation of like an affluent middle class of Americans who wanted to, you know, enjoy themselves after the war. And so you mm-hmm. see kind of a, a spike of plastic surgery in this period of um, middle-class oh. women starting to to more and more be interested in um, rhinoplasty and also facelifts. Post-World War II is when the facelift comes to be. And oh, middle-class cool. Americans start to take surgeons up um, to you know try and enjoy themselves and, and perfect themselves and, and so on. So in the post-war period, you see a doubling of plastic surgeons, um, sorry, a doubling of doctors in the post-war period, and I think a doubling of plastic surgeons. So there's a massive like growth of, of people who are trained who can do yes. this cosmetic work. Um, and the U.S. is really a leader of it. And interestingly, like in the, the late 50s and the 60s, the American Society for Plastic and Reconstructive Surgeons started to really begin a public relations campaign to make more people want plastic surgery. So in 1962, they have officially, their public relations committee moves from a status of passive cooperation to those seeking information, like who wrote in letters saying like, I want surgery to an active educational, quote unquote, educational and public relations program. So there's a real shift towards like, you know, the American people need plastic surgery and not just like, we'll help them if if they have these severe psychological conditions, we can help them like, you know, everyone can kind of benefit. And in an outgoing presidential address to this group of plastic and reconstructive uh, surgeons, this professional society, William Milton Adams, who was the outgoing president, he he notes that more people need this surgery. And, and this is a quote from him uh, that I got from Elizabeth Haken. One has only to walk a block down a city street. Probably one of every five persons one meets will have some defect which could be improved or completely corrected by plastic surgery. No, no, no. So there's a real like, <laughs> and that's not like uniquely like the plastic surgeons either. It's like the, the AMA really starts to, to do a lot of PR work at this time just to improve the image of doctors more broadly. But um, yes. there, there is like an, you know, like educating people that they need plastic surgery, which is kind of um, curious. Um, so sorry. Yeah. I hope that yeah, answers. Yeah. I probably should have done that earlier. Um, no, no, that absolutely answered. So as part of, um, as part of this, like, you know, public kind of relations campaign, everyone needs plastic surgery, you know, surgeons start to think like, um, like obviously it's like a consumer product that they can make a lot of money off of. Um, but there's even yes. some surgeons who are like, you know, we should make it accessible and affordable to everyone. So you have like a New York surgeon, oh. E. Hoyt decline in 1955 say, the prime objective of our specialty should be an overall increase in high quality cosmetic work for people of all economic levels. So there is a very like American kind of democratic virtue to this. like if we can right. all become more beautiful and like, no matter, no matter what station you were born into, oh. you could become more beautiful. If only you pay, you can be that. hot. If you, yeah. oh, no. which is definitely kind of um, pernicious and it's, it's interesting. Um, yes. 
so yeah and and yeah in the 60s like i said it becomes much more popular you have descriptions in vogue and esquire about you know women undergoing facelifts how happy they are you have advertisements as well and it wasn't just for you know the wealthy or the hedonists or the narcissist but it was for the everyday kind of yes. suburban woman um yes interesting little note too like for the most part uh cosmetic surgery has always been marketed to women and taken up by women yeah, in 1970, for example, women accounted for more than 90% of cosmetic surgery patients, some estimates say 95% of patients. And by 1999, they still account for more than 80%. So, and I yes. don't have the stats for today, but there, there's a huge gender dimension, obviously, to all of this that like women are expected. And there's, there's much more stringent beauty standards and norms um, that apply to women than to men. But um, facelifts, were seen among men, even though rare. And a 1967 <laughs> study of 325 repeat cosmetic surgery patients who had facelifts, um, the study notes that nearly all were mentally disturbed, unmarried males between the ages of 20 and 35, who were characterized by, quote, grandiose ambitions, low self-esteem, little heterosexual interests, and high anxiety. So there was a sense, obviously, like, cosmetic surgery was very much coded <laughs> as gay it was coded as, fe as feminine obviously but yes. also coded as gay so when men had it yes. um by that description you can see you know all the all the stereotypes around um gay men um that are very homophobic also very little uh, heterosexual interest. yeah so that's um i was like me um so <laughs> Um, so th that was just, I think, like an interesting <laughs> kind of wrinkle in this. And so, yeah, to this day, there's more and more men proportionately who are, you know, doing cosmetic surgery or, or I guess receiving cosmetic surgery. It's mostly been men doing it, like as surgeons, I should say. Yes, um, right. But um, it's still like, you know, in the 80, 70 percent range of, of women who are taking mm -hmm. um, plastic surgeries up and between even 1997 and 2014, there's been a 274% increase in plastic surgeries in the US. So Whoa. we are living in like, you know, the heyday of cosmetic yes. surgery. What a time um, to be alive. It really is. So that's honestly all I got to in my research. I sadly, I wish I could have read more of Elizabeth um, Haken's book, but that's where I ended no, that was in the post-war. So, I mean, I'm, I'm sure I, we can, when we get to significance, we can talk about what we think now, but... Yeah, yeah, that's kind of like that's like the re the modern history of plastic surgery or cosmetic. Wow, that's honestly like that was very interesting because yeah, it um it makes sense with the wars. Like I I had never even considered it, but that would make sense. That would really fast track yeah. their their knowledge in that subject. And of course, once the wars are kind of over, you're like, yeah. okay, well now we want to make money. Like how do we yeah. keep this going? It's also just and it's you painted on people that it's like we can make you your dream person. Totally. <laughs> And it's interesting too, like how the justifications had to come around, right? Like how they could do it in yes. the war for economic independence because men had to, you know, be the providers. Mm -hmm. And then slowly like, oh yeah, if you have an inferiority complex, we can do it. And I guess I would say probably mm -hmm. now we still have relics of that, but I'd say now it's more like, no, like you do what you want. Like you don't need a justification you yes. do it for yourself, which I would say is kind of the last yes. shift maybe we get um, in that history. I hope but so. Okay, Mart, how was your snack? I saw you I saw you eating it's, it. 
Yeah, I don't know if, if the listeners could hear me crunching through it, but this, it's all gone now. I've eaten the whole thing. Holy, okay, yeah, I didn't even know. This that. was amazing because essentially, like, I was looking at their menu before I went there, like any mm-hmm. any girl does. So online, it was saying pistachio raspberry croissants. Right. Um, but then when I got there, on the little sign, it just said pistachio. So I was like, okay, like I still vibe with the pistachio croissant. And then I bit into this thing mm-hmm. and juices of raspberry are flowing out. And it's honestly so incredible because like the pistachio itself is like very sweet and it kind of has like that almondy vibe to it. If anyone knows kind of like what marzipan is like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but then you get that, like that bite, the tartness of the raspberry. Fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. That's so in- it's such an interesting <laughs> flavor combo. Like would not It is. But yeah. okay, I'm glad you like But I would say like if you if you're a diehard true pistachio croissant lover, Boku Bakery that I reviewed a couple weeks ago right. might be more up your alley. Right. But this is for those of us who are adventurous in our pistachio mm, endeavors. Right. So, this is for people yes. who like to live on the edge a little. Yeah, you know, throw caution to the wind. They take yeah. a bite of something new every day. Fuck social <laughs> norms. I'm getting the pistachio raspberry croissant. <laughs> kind of that vibe. Yes. Break down the barriers to croissants. Break them down. I love that. And what are you, how was your, how was your creme brulee down? Okay, so. Did it have like a crunch when you bit into it? Like, did you break through the brulee? No, I, I, okay. I haven't experienced that. No, maybe it doesn't happen <laughs> if you, I haven't eaten a whole ton, but. Well, first thing I'm going to say, remember a couple of weeks ago, I had a donut and I discovered I don't like dense donuts. Like I don't like bread yes. donuts. I or No, I like bread donuts. I don't like um, like cakey donuts. Remember, I was yes. like, I like an old donuts. fashioned Tim Hortons. You don't yes. love that. I don't but you like, like, like the honey one. dip. Yes. Yes. So first of all, yeah. this donut wins massive points because it's bready and it's good bread. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's oh, not okay. the cake stuff. The outside is very, yes. it's like a simple like sugar glaze. The inside has a filling. And again, I Ooh, normally okay. don't, I normally do not like fillings at all. Normally I think fillings in donuts are disgusting, but this is creme brulee and the middle <laughs> tastes like creme brulee, which I fucking die for. Oh, so it's actually like, this is probably the only donut with filling I would ever eat. Like if you have a jelly filling regularly, like oh. throw that shit in the garbage. I hate it. Oh, but oh, you know what? That's that's harsh. <laughs> As he takes so bite. good, like so, like oh, well, you know what creme brulee is like, like kind of like sugar, eggy, like I don't know if it's egg, but whatever it is, it's yum. That's so, good because the, the worry is that you get a creme brulee donut and it's just filled with like no offense, but I don't like the Boston cream at Tim Hortons. Like it's mm-hmm. filled with like that kind of like sticky sweet cream <laughs> no this is good and i'm actually not okay. a huge donut person as i always say so i'm right. impressed i'll give it to holy cow good job holy cow it's great holy cow it's pretty good so <laughs> yeah um okay well should we get into significance yeah sam so why why is it significant the history of cosmetology plastic surgery i honestly don't know i, I didn't do any research um so this is just my opinion right now <laughs> unvarnished okay well that's that's what half of this thing is right that is true yeah as if everything else is like historical fact it's like us just riffing um no i mean i just think like it's such a cosmetic surgery is such a powerful force in everyone's lives 
Like I just, like I don't know how else to describe it. Like it's it's such a culture. It's so normal now. Like yes. normalized. I hate the word normalized, but it's so it is so like it is part of like cultural our cultural fabric in North America with celebrity mm-hmm. culture. Like like all stars have like one form or another of some sort of cosmetic yes. surgery. Like it's kind of table stakes, and I feel like it's much more. Uh, even than it was like in the post-war period it, it's much more accessible um mm-hmm. it, there's not even like we were talking there's not even like that need always for it to be you know medically necessary um no, right like yeah. it's kind of just like oh if you want it then you want it and like people shouldn't judge it um yes. so I don't know and I, I think of like people like Kim Kardashian like these these cultural icons who kind of are known for their looks that are mostly cosmetic surgery um, which is kind of a yes, relatively yeah. new phenomenon, I would say. Maybe not. People can fact check me, but um, yeah. So I, mean- I think just the thing that drives me nuts is I don't take issue with people wanting to like alter themselves or however to make them feel more confident. Like I'm, I get that. Right. I don't appreciate though when celebs who have these massive platforms and have a lot of people looking up to them claim that what they have is any, in any way natural, that they totally. were just born like that. Yeah. And it's like, that's completely unfair to all your younger, like, like uh, fans who yeah. tune in. And it's like, they then think that they are somehow less than you because they were born looking a different way when it's like, you weren't even born looking that way. Yeah, totally. And then even like a cup, like it was like a month ago now, or maybe Chloe Kardashian got like very upset because a f- like a photo was posted of her that she wouldn't feel confident in. Right. And she goes, that doesn't show like my best self, whatever. And then people were just upset because they're like, but that shows you looking realistic. Yeah. And it's like, you have created, you and your family have created this beauty standard that right. you even can't live up to. And then you're upset because you're like, people will make fun of how I look. And it's like, but you've created that standard yeah. by which we judge. So it's like very hard. Yeah. No, it definitely, it's interesting. Like even in the, in the book, like I think Haken says like, her kind of argument or her point of view on it is that a lot of the time cosmetic surgery is a way of individualizing a social problem. Like it's a way of, instead of, instead of, you know, encouraging people to fight against these beauty norms that are toxic and, um, and harmful, the solution is sold as like, Oh, just fit in, which, which yes. you like, obviously you can't blame people for like wanting to fit in either. Like, no, you know what I mean? Yeah. You don't want to blame people for, for having plastic surgery or, or whatever. If they, when they yes. feel like not confident about themselves either. But um, like when you look at it from like, I guess a systems perspective, like the, the economic benefits that these surgeons get the way that they kind of prey on like mm-hmm. a very gendered set of beauty norms that target, particularly young women's like self-esteem like it is kind of yeah pernicious anyways i don't know a mixed bag on plastic yeah. surgery and I game support it. i get it <laughs> and it all comes back to, to yeah <laughs> homophobia yeah <laughs> but yeah it no. is it's interesting honestly like thanks for doing that it is interesting yeah. to see how it kind of all came about and where we are now compared to how it started off Thanks. Yeah. It is kind of random. Syphilis stuff. does it again. Syphilis. I know. It's like it literally, it all comes back to syphilis. <laughs> it actually does. Yeah. I swear. All of history. Um, but, yeah. So Sam, would we, would we recommend a holy cow? Like, are you maybe going back? Will go back? Won't go back? I say I will go back if I had to buy someone like donuts. You know what I mean? Like, okay. like I'm just not really a donut person, as you know. So I yes. don't imagine myself like, 
you know, like going out of your way. No, like going for like a cream puff or something like from a couple Mm -hmm, weeks ago. mm -hmm. But like for the donuts I've had, I would say this is quite impressive. So I would go Okay. Oh, nice. Yeah. What about Um, you? I think that I, I put it on the might list. Okay. Because it's, it's something that if I was, it's in Yale town, this place. So if I was in Yale town, which sometimes I go to because they have a dog boutique, that's right. why we were there this week is it's Pebble's birthday this week. So we were getting her a new harness and leash combo naturally, <laughs> naturally as normal people do. And so I was already there, which is why we got it. Mm-hmm. So I think if in that circumstance, again, I would go back. I just won't go out of my way. Like on a day off, I wouldn't drive there just for it. Mm, I see. Yeah. Fair enough, girly. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for allowing me to be heard. Yeah, of course. <laughs> That's what this podcast is all about. What it's all about. Um, well, do you have a topic for next week that the listeners should kind of gear up for? Or... Our friend of the pod, mm-hmm. Mia, suggested a topic that will kind of give you background to the film Aaron Brockovich, mm. starring, what's her name? Julia. Hmm. Julia. Julia Roberts? Julia Roberts, starring Julia Roberts. Uh, so I've never actually seen the, the movie. It's on my mm. to-watch list. But if you've ever heard of Aaron Brockovich or seen the movie and kind of want to know a little bit more about the history behind it, yeah. that's what we're going to be chatting about. That's major. Very major. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was stupid. Well, thanks for listening, <laughs> folks. We'll talk to you all next week. And as always, if you have any... Um, any topics you want us to cover because <laughs> uh my one last week was sent by our friend griffin and then next week is going to be mia's so if you have any topics or places you want us to go try and eat from please let us know we'd love to hear from you all <laughs> all our dear dear listeners thank you yes thank you and we'll talk to you all next week bye, bye. <laughs>